and welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role and amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome the founding partner of the new media company Puck, Teddy Schleifer. Prior to Puck, Teddy was the senior reporter of Money and Influence at the tech publication Recode, where he covered some of the most influential new entrants into philanthropy, including Mackenzie Scott, Zuckerberg's Jack Dorsey, and the like. Teddy explores the role that large private donors play in filling funding gaps created in our public and social priorities. He looks at where funders should be held accountable to ensure investments are in the best interest of people and to those changes that it can make in our democracy. But I'll stop here and introduce Teddy. Teddy, hey. Hi, thanks for having me. So Teddy, please share with us a little bit about you and your work. Sure. So um, I cover the world of kind of big money. So that means covering big philanthropy, big political donations, uh, big tax avoidance, the the whole gamut. And I I came into this world, you know, as someone who I think that wealthy people have, you know, objectively an extraordinary amount of power in setting kind of the nation's agenda in setting the economic conditions in which millions of people work and believing that there needs to be a good amount of scrutiny on kind of how people use that power responsibly. So I'm not necessarily someone who's a you know a, a raging, uh, pitchfork wielding uh, class warrior. Nor do I see myself as a sort of a bootlicker uh, of of the mega rich. But you know, from a kind of a objective journalistic perspective, just trying to come at this and understand if the system is working. So as you mentioned, I was at Recode for a while, covering kind of tech money. And now I'm a part of Puck, which is a new publication that's sort of looking at the rich and powerful and their exploits. So, you know, we have folks in Hollywood, people in D.C., people in New York, on Wall Street, and I'm out here in San Francisco, sort of doing the same thing I've been doing for the last five or six years now, which is covering the ultra wealthy. I love it. And actually, I've always been really intrigued by the role of sort of, you know, the private sector to step in where maybe the public sector or government has potentially failed or where there are gaps in funding for X, Y, or Z reasons. But, you know, I think philanthropy has come, you know, to this sort of idea, like you said, big corporations, big philanthropy, like these all exist in some form and having, you know, an idea and bringing, bringing not only to light what's happening, but where governance is needed, I think is like truly one of the more exciting things that we need to be thinking about as more and more gaps come in and as more and more people move into, I think it was like 30% increase um, was one of your research points in billionaires in the, or in the Forbes 500. What was that? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yes. And in more and more people coming into this and it's an incredible opportunity for us to be able to, you know, kind of get a sense of where, where we need to be showing up in terms of, of that coverage too. So tell us a little bit about sort of what ignited your initial interest in covering billionaires and philanthropy. So I was at CNN covering money and politics. That's that's kind of how I came into this stuff. And, you know, I would 
deal with the Sheldon Adelsons and Charles Cokes of the world and Tom Styers and Michael Bloomberg's and, and realized that was kind of only covering part of the story, right? The amount of money that wealthy people spend political projects is really just a small sliver of their broader uh, social impact spending, I guess you could call it. And the line between kind of political projects and philanthropy can be very thin. Uh, I think lots of it reflects which side of the partisan divide you're on. You know, uh, if you're listening to this and you're on the on, you're on the left, the Koch network considers their spending to be philanthropy. I'm sure those on the left would not consider that. And if you're on the right, you look at lots of kind of political spending that's done by Democratic donors to register voters, say, and they consider that philanthropy, though if you're a conservative, you wouldn't. Um, so the line between these things is very thin. But I, I came into this through the, the political door and have sort of broadened my aperture over the last three or four years to write about the bigger picture, which is the bigger bucket that politics sits in, which is, hey, there's a bunch of rich people, you have billions of dollars, and you want to change the world and remold it in your image, how are you going to spend it? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting is, to your point, and, and, and it is this funny conversation we're all having about DEI and equality and diversity, and the truth is, is that it's very easy. I'm similarly from San Francisco. So I, I, you know, there are certain structures I have that may be reflecting my values, but it's interesting because to your point, left untethered, big philanthropy, left or right or whatever it be, can really push things like wealth concentration gaps, political agendas, unaccountable agendas, you know, all those things that change our democracy and shape our landscape in ways that the informed masses, you know, need to be aware of. So I, I think it's a really interesting thing. I, I love that there's someone like you focusing on this. And this is actually something that's new to our podcast in terms of this perspective of where does this kind of sit. So walk me through really Puck and this newest venture. And, and do you still plan on covering those? Or what's sort of the arc, if you will, in really what you want to build in this new chapter? Yeah. So so Puck is, uh, I'm going to be doing the same thing I've been doing the last four or five years now. I mean, over the last couple of months, you know, Puck has basically been in beta and we launched more formally last month, but all summer I've been writing about sort of the big philanthropists and the big mega donors and what they're up to. So the other week I was writing a story about Carla Jurvetson, who's kind of uh, one of the biggest democratic donors in the Bay area and the money she's spending on kind of political reform. I've written this summer about Mackenzie Scott and Bill Gates. So sort of doing the same jam, but you know, I think the, the premise of puck is that we want to capture the inside story, the the things that really happen, which people don't really want to talk about it in this world. I mean, especially when it comes to philanthropy, because everyone's got a conflict of interest. Everyone is, you know, if you're a grantee and you're out there, you know, talking about, hey, here's the downside to the, to the funders I work with. Right. People don't, you, you don't get refunded. So, <laughs> you know, I'm a believer that there's, there's two conversations that happen and there's kind of what gets written and there's what people really know. And to the extent that we can, close the chasm between those two things, I think that's in the public service. So right. that's that, that's where I'm coming from. But that, And that's how, how I think my work might be a little different at PUC than at Recode is at PUC, I'm trying to capture, you know, I have a little bit more creative license to say what really happens and say what I really think about the people I cover uh, with some personality in, in a way that you know, as part of Vox, maybe I'm coloring slightly more inside the lines. Right. And I think that, you know, to your point that this opportunity to be, you know, somewhat iconoclastic in the way we're examining these movements in these sectors and, and honestly, these individuals is something we need to be very blunt about. So I think though, when I say, 
you know, why now with Puck, it sounds like because we have to. But is there a specific other why now? Like, why? what made you make the the big jump to say this? I mean, Puck, really Puck just started. I mean, that, I mean that's, yeah. the, that's the honest answer. I mean, Puck just started this year. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's coming at a, at a time when there's just uh, an incredible amount of hunger for something different in the media. So we just started this year. Um, and there's a group of about a dozen of us. You know, I mentioned in kind of the four power centers of American culture who are all kind of writing about the characters of our world. So the new publication just started this year. You know, it's something that's it actually really like hits home to me right now because it's one of the things that as we as technologists continue to move on, bringing our own values into what does it mean and how do we how do we support DEI and how do we do this and who are our clients and how do we represent our values it is a constant struggle to say, you know, when, when you have people with different views of you that are affecting the community in a positive way versus, you know, what are the unforeseen things? So it is, a, it's just a real struggle, um, to be honest, even at the technology level. So sure, um, sure. I just want to commend the, the complexity of the issue. But let's take a look at, you know, this idea of, of how media, social, and even more formal journalism can really impact the philanthropic sector. Because I think the call to action for Puck is to bring a broader voice to some of these elevated places where we need to have you know, hold people accountable or actually just promote things that are going well. And I think there's still a gap. And I'm curious on that kind of train of thought, where do you see, or why do you think it is actually that philanthropy tends to have less widespread coverage than other industries like technology? Like why is it that there aren't more pucks out there in other aspects being such a large part of our GDP, who we are in our social sector? I think a lot of, you know, top editors at, at publication just think it's boring. I mean, that, that's the honest answer. It's like, okay, a rich person gives, you know, $100 million away to a food bank. Why do I care? And philanthropy can be boring, to be totally clear. You know, I think I write about it in a different way, which as an expression of power, an expression of values right. about how sort of kind of the ultimate winners of, of capitalism are converting their money into kind of soft power. I think some philanthropy coverage is boring. And, and I think there's there's a... A uh, way to understand it, not just as, you know, rich person does a good thing. Thank you so right. much, you know, sir. But as, as a way of kind of being a, a part of the broader economic system, right? I mean, right. The, 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 the part of the reason why wealthy people give large amounts of money away, like, obviously, is part of the story, of course, has to do with things like taxes and... Right reputation burnishing like to pretend that's not a part of the story of mega philanthropy is 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 ludicrous so that stuff is interesting you know i think you can argue that some of the other stuff isn't but i think to the the broader question isn't just because editors make it hard or, or editors aren't interested i think part of this is that the subjects make it hard for us i think that lots of mega philanthropists are incredibly thin-skinned and have very low thresholds for what they would consider a quote-unquote negative story and are only really interested in positive pieces that you know are just puffery for all the good they're doing in the world i mean that i'm that's the sort of coverage i'm not interested in for i don't really see any value in that but you know uh, more at even high at an even higher level i mean i think wealthy people are just hard to cover you know i see this beat as fundamentally about inequality um and fundamentally about the rich and the poor. And I think there should be reporters covering the poor. And I think there should be recover reporters covering the mega rich. But there's all these minders around them and deals and, you know, the their wealthy people are used to getting their way. So I think wealthy people at a, at a higher level make it hard for any observer, whether it's a reporter, an academic, you know, a researcher who's trying to cover the nonprofit sector. I think wealthy people 
a combination of all these things. They, A, have thin skin, B, make it hard for reporters to do their jobs. And I don't think there's been enough buy-in from kind of the mainstream media into this topic. So as you start to see people like Villanueva come in with the decolonizing wealth type structures, is this the the sort of momentum you want to see more of that? Or or where are you seeing? Is it is, Does that seem too fringe? Or what is it that getting it into the mainstream media is really where we need to start seeing those voices? So I know there's a little bit of momentum, but to your point, it doesn't seem like it's covering equally on both sides, like you said, rich, poor, you know, the spectrum still has some gaps. Is that is that fair to say? You know, I, I don't really see myself as necessarily part of the critic class okay. of kind of big philanthropy. Yeah, that's good to know. That's awesome. Like Edgar or an right, right, artist. Right. I mean, these are, like, I mean, I see my job as, you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter who thinks that these topics need yes. much more scrutiny. It's not necessarily like, I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily trying to indict the entire system here, but like right. to ask the right questions. And obviously, I would say the critics have informed the questions that I ask. And I think that's, Good. You know, of yeah. course, that's of course, that's true of anybody who covers a sector is, you know, you know, if you are a reporter covering the Packers, you know, what other teams think about the Packers would inform the questions you ask of the the quarterbacks or the general manager of the Packers. But like, right. to me, to me, it's, you know, I, I don't I don't align myself necessarily with the critics. And I think lots of times the critics go over their skis. And like, I think they definitely have a, uh, you know, I'm a hammer and here's a nail sort of phenomenon where they paint in extraordinarily broad brushes at the times and, yeah. you know, lump in Jeffrey Epstein giving, <laughs> you know, millions of dollars to yeah. a nonprofit to paper over his misdeeds. They lump that in with the, right. you know, upper middle class suburban family that gives $10,000 to their church. Like th- those yeah. are very different charitable <laughs> acts. So, you know, I, I think there's obviously more, questioning of the system. And I think that's healthy because a lot of the system did not have any real kind of debate or or internal questioning. But I don't necessarily agree with the answers to the questions that are proposed by the critics, as much as I am, I guess, thankful to some extent they're being asked. Right. And actually, the reason I brought that up is because I was, you know, getting a sense for kind of where do you fall? And of course, as a journalist, staying as as clearly in the middle and agnostic as you can be on those things, I think is important. But to your point, the questions being asked, I think is one of the most compelling parts of a lot of the the work, the writing you do that I in reading it, I felt like there, there was an opportunity and appetite for realism here that that I think that to your point, other people have to hit pretty hard and almost uh, too iconoclastic in their play to sort of be, um, you know, to catch people on, on their heels. But I think what I what I've really enjoyed about your work, and I definitely encourage listeners to go check it out, is, is to get that perspective, you know, at a more even level. But if you were to say, as we look at sort of the philanthropy on the whole, or what you would want to see changed, is there something specifically you call out and say, this is sort of where I see a root cause or a challenge in, in certain aspects of philanthropy that we we do need to fundamentally check as an assumption or anything in philanthropy that you feel is a really important area to really re-engineer? I mean, I think uh, to, to the point about uh, Anand a moment ago, I do think that sort of understanding the source of the wealth and how the wealth was created and, and juxtaposing that against the ways the wealth is used I do think that is something that lots of philanthropists don't want to talk about. They only want to talk about the money they give away, and they don't want to talk about kind of the broader holistic picture of what is my impact on earth. And that includes their charitable giving, and that includes their corporate life. So maybe the primary thing I'm asking for is, is, a, is a 
broadening of kind of our understanding of these people's impact, not necessarily, hey, you should be doing X instead of Y, but it's almost a paradigm shift about the things that you ask and the questions we pose. Mm. Because I do think it's relevant. And and to, to insist that, you know, the the left hand is different than the right hand rather than being part of the same body, I think is ridiculous. That's not to say that like the even answering the question about whether or not, you know, billionaires are good for the world, I don't think that's necessarily an easy question to answer. I mean, you know, for every critic of Jeff Bezos that there is, I mean, you could argue, you know, Bezos has totally unleashed a new industry of e-commerce and that that you know Amazon is now I think the first or second largest private employer in the United States and that you know and Amazon is now paying college tuition for its employees right. I mean there's like uh, I don't necessarily think the class critics who you know cart out the guillotine for for Bezos at his mansion uh, necessarily have it right either right I mean there's lots of questions about philanthropy I think are really questions about the economy about whether or not the system is fundamentally working. And if you want to know, like, should billionaires exist, which is, you know, obviously a question that people on the left are asking, I think you really have to answer questions about like, should trillion dollar companies exist, right? right. And these are th- these are hard questions to answer. And like, and there's not, you know, I'm not I'm not wielding the solutions here. No, it, it's an interesting concept of, you know, of course, the question that, that I would follow up with that is like, you know, what depends what the company's doing. <laughs> and like to some degree, I, I think the same thing stands for someone like a billionaire, which is, you know, it depends what they're doing. If they're throwing it into a DAF, and I'd love your opinion on DAFs, but you know, when you look at things like that that are intermediaries that are slowing the process of getting monies into the social sector, you know, that's where I sort of say, well, the structures matter and the business matters and the things underneath that matter. So I am curious just to ask a kind of controversial question. What's your take on things like DAFs where they're slowing the process of getting those funds over, but at the same point, holding structure for people that are trying to get money into the economy in a really positive way? I'm not necessarily as anti-DAF as some people think I am. Like, I mean, to me, um, you know, I think the debate about DAFs has gotten so reductive because- People can just say whatever they want, and there's basically no data that shows how individual accounts are, are doing it, sending money into the sector. So basically, it, it has a ship's passing in the night feeling where you know DAF defenders can say, hey, look at our average payout rate. And you know, DAF critics can say, yeah, but it's theoretically possible that you know, rich person A doesn't right. do it, or you know, the median DAF might be doing X, Y, and Z, but the, the worst DAFs, which is also true. So like, it feels like everybody is able to say what they want because there's no individual reporting by individual accounts, yep. um, which makes the debate sort of infuriating to write about because everyone is able to insist that they're right and there's no bullshit kind of detection. Um, so that's 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 part of the, the challenge of writing about it. I mean, I, I, I do think that you know, if you're pro-transparency, you want to see individual DAF account payout rates, that would be helpful. And I think that would allow you to have a much better sense of if there is widespread abuse happening or if this is just sort of a, a nightmare scenario peddled by uh, some academics and some right. philanthropy critics. Right. And I mean, amongst those, I mean, that's just one of the many, many trending topics, like you said, in philanthropy. It was a hot topic. It's sort of found itself without a lot of data. And I think one of the things that points to is the fact that we don't have a great way of collecting collaborative data or anything of that nature downstream. So that's just something as technologists, we're constantly kind of saying, well, how do we do that? A lot of times the rate limiting step is as simple as people don't share their data. <laughs> but right. but what we can do, I think, is really 
make that something that we when we can open the door when they're ready. But I think that the idea about open data is really the focus that we are trying to push, but you know, to each their own. The other trending topics, what are the other major things you're you kind of think of when we're talking about philanthropy today that you're covering or that you think we need to cover more of big trending topics? You know, I, I think one big question uh, is, is just how much these people will engage kind of politically. And when you think about whether or not these people are, and I say these people as I grossly overgeneralized thousands of in- individuals, but um, <laughs> look, I mean, I'm, look, there's a, uh, I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, look, there's a great question about whether or not by focusing on kind of nonprofit philanthropic, you know, 501c3 donations, you are missing the kind of big questions about American society, which is, is the system kind of working politically, economically, uh, financially? And there's not really, you know, sometimes you see sort of a myopic kind of framework from some kind of big donors who don't want to engage in politics. You know, I wonder sometimes whether they're missing the boat. Obviously, over the last five years, there have been all these Silicon Valley types who have started spending enormous amounts of money on kind of anti-Trump stuff, for instance, right? And and you you always got the sense that some of them didn't necessarily want to be doing it. They sort of thought it thought it was beneath them, or you know they didn't like being in the mud, or maybe they had unease about being another big donor in politics, and they think that it skews outcomes toward you know more. Uh, oligarchic and less democratic outcomes. Uh, on the other hand, clearly, um, you know, if you are a, a progressive who thinks that you know Trump is some sort of threat, clearly you have not won yet. And I wonder whether or not these people are going to stick around because you you do get the sense that you know if if you wanted to change the world, you probably wouldn't spend more money on kind of partisan political combat. And sometimes I'm amazed that people don't there's not more money in politics. You know, you take someone like Mackenzie Scott who's uh, you know, claims that she wants to port, part with her $65 billion fortune uh, and wants to, you know, lead to kind of social change on causes she cares about. You know, she doesn't spend a dime on kind of political right. campaigns. Maybe that would be better than, you know, other things that she's spending her money on. Or even, even her ex-husband, Jeff Bezos, right, has a $10 billion Bezos Earth Fund focused on climate change. There are certainly some Democrats I talk to who say, that if Bezos wanted to spend $10 billion on solving climate change, he should, you know, elect more Democrats, which is something he will not do. In fact, Bezos's only real kind of political expenditure to date, at least major one, was a couple years ago, he spent $10 million to elect veterans running for office, which included some Republicans who, uh, you know, certainly disagree with Bezos on climate change. So I, 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 one of the big questions I have about kind of the new crop of mega donors is how political they're willing to be or if they're just going to kind of throw their hands up and try and stay nonpartisan and above it. So Mackenzie Scott's, I think, a great example of someone who obviously became a a talking point to large foundations of how do we do things differently? How do we do things better? Trust-based philanthropy, all the things that you can kind of hear, you know, in in the hubbub of communications around the larger legacy foundations. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that's going to become the norm? Do you think that's something that more people are going to drive towards? Or do you think that, you know, there's a reason why legacy foundations exist and blending the two will be important? A lot of people 
people criticize, for example, Mackenzie Scott of just writing really big checks to people that have the capacity to use them, which takes the monies and puts them into sort of more of your, you know, the the canopy, if you will, trees, not the actual ground. So I, I'm curious to get your take on on Mackenzie because you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, Mackenzie has shown that a different model is possible, though I do think some of the hoopla around her has gotten a little bit ahead of itself. You know, she has shown definitely that it is possible to give away money at a much faster clip with much less overhead and much less, you know, shtick. But I don't know if she's going to have the last laugh. I mean, let's let's like wait five years is sort of my point on this. Like, you know, the Gates Foundation has 1,500 people that work in Seattle right. and around the world for a reason, at least in theory right. for a reason, right? Because they think that the bureaucracy and, you know, the forms and the lumbering nature of kind of big philanthropy, that there's a logic to it, right? That there's a reason why you need to do this. And maybe maybe Mackenzie will have the last laugh, right? And, and maybe Mackenzie will show that the Gates Foundation doesn't need 1,500 people to do this and you can do this all yourself. I agree. But I feel like some of the media narrative has has gotten ahead of itself and and uh, it's possible that like McKenzie gives fifty million dollars to something that like is a total scam or not a scam, but just something that implodes in a fantastic fashion in a way that would never happen if she had more structure. That's like a plausible scenario, right. or maybe a risk that she's willing to take the same way a VC would. I don't know, but yeah, it's a very interesting concept of applying, like you said, with less understanding of like not just the change you want to make but you know what are the policies you use to enforce it and make sure those continue on like how do you make sure that that is a from a longitudinal view doing the thing you anticipated i think you're completely right that's, there. that's totally plausible um and there's just not uh we'll see yeah. is the honest is the honest yeah. boring answer we'll see no i love it i i agree i think it's such an interesting thing i think it's challenges the way people think but i also you know i'm i'm in the same position which is true change is is met through um you know there's there has to be a policy element that changes the system underneath that 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 you know maybe that that's funding but very excited though i love what she's doing i i'm curious to see how it all plays out so final question before we go into our fancy rapid fire question section. And and that's really, of course, about where we are today. The, the overall panic that we had around the pandemic, environmental crisis, these things where billionaires have had to come in into a disaster mode and put money out there. And, and I'm curious to get your sense. Do you worry that the future is really dependent on billionaires and their money to sort of fuel some of these, these efforts where we have a system that has, has fallen short? I actually think the answer is no. I, I I don't have that much worry about it. I mean, the I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about that, that, you know, philanthropists are going to show their power in a way and are going to be, you know, the fail safe for, uh, you know, a system that's not working. But then, you know, the federal government, you know, much, much maligned played a huge role in kind of being that safety net during the pandemic, right? I mean, billionaires got wealthier, but what's also not often said is that, you know, lots of regular middle-class people got wealthier too because, you know, the federal government spent trillions of dollars in economic stimulus and, you know, appears to be about to spend even more as part of kind of the Biden plan. So I know that was a concern uh, entering entering this. And obviously billionaires did play a key role, you know, the, would there have been as fast a vaccine had it not been for the Gates Foundation or, or, or whatnot. But I do think that some of the, oh my God, the sky is falling and we're going to be dependent on the generosity of Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and Kenzie Scott. Like, I don't think that really was borne out. Maybe that would have been borne out if the government hadn't been quite as aggressive as it was. 
All right. So let's wrap up this podcast on a rapid fire note. I'm going to run you through a series of short, quick questions. And I encourage you to respond with the very first thing that pops into your mind. Are you ready? Sure. Hit me. All right. So the Forbes 400 list just came out. Who is your favorite new face in the crowd? And who is the most effective philanthropist on that list? Um, I'll say someone I've interviewed, re- interviewed a couple times recently, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, who is, uh, Ooh, yes. 28 years old, 29 years yep, old, who, 29, yeah. uh, claimed who is a founder of a crypto exchange called FTX yep. and is now, yep. uh, according to Forbes worth, I think 21, $22 billion. I was definitely, Sam has claimed that to me private or I guess publicly before that he was worth like 10 or $12 billion. And I was sort of did not think that was credible, but. Apparently Forbes does, and they're the gold standard on this. They so checked may, it, yeah. <laughs> may, maybe he is. I mean, Sam's an interesting, interesting guy. I mean, he basically is sort of a a, a believer that you know, well, that young people who are ambitious should just make as much money as humanly possible, and then donate it all away, and they shouldn't really get too caught up in you know a social impact through their jobs, which is very in vogue in Silicon Valley. So Sam is certainly an interesting guy. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm so fascinated by him and Vitalik and all those guys that are they're coming into to play right now and how they're how they can move things through and, and those vehicles are so, you know, his even Vitalik's donation to what was it one billion dollars to India for Corona and sh- and like the fact coin. that it's not in liquid form it's such an interesting conversation to have yes. yeah yes. totally um, go Ethereum all right so um, the next question is if you could switch your beat to cover anything else in the world what would it be and why. Uh, I would love to cover sports. I mean, I, I, I find, um, you know, there, there's definitely a pack mentality of like covering, covering a team, but, um, you know, I was talking about the Packers earlier, but like, I like the competitiveness of kind of journalism and would love to cover, uh, kind of a, a franchise and nice. beat up, uh, some other reporters. <laughs> Who's your team? Is it, is it the Packers? Is that your main no, team? No, no. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Eagles fan in football, but oh. I, yeah. Um, I, I love, I just love football. So I, I would love to cover any team really. That's awesome. And the final question, uh, if you could snap your fingers and instantly fix one of the world's most pervasive problems, what would it be and why? I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll say, uh, education policy, just because that's the sort of, it feels like the root of so many other issues. Though I know obviously, Poverty plays a role in that as well. So I don't know if that's necessarily the the root root, but it's one of the roots. And it's the sort of, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley people have spent a ton of money over the last decade to try to fix education policy, you know, through sort of education reform movements. Unclear if that money's really worked. It's one of these really intractable challenges. I'm glad I'm on the side of covering it and not trying to actually do it. <laughs> thank you. That makes I love it. Thank you so much. So Teddy. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing more about yourself and your work. Our listeners can learn more about Puck at Puck.news, which will be linked in the episode description. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at Flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X.io. 